The message tonight is chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, starting a new section. As I said earlier, we were meant to be uh, looking at this the end of November, and then I was unwell after the COVID booster, and it was delayed until the Sunday or so after, and then I actually caught COVID. So this is the third attempt. It's not right to say third time lucky, is it? But there is a saying in Welsh, three tries for a Welshman. So maybe tonight. So the Apostle Paul, up till now, in the second part of the letter, has been looking at the Christian life. How do we live as believers in an alien world? And he's looked at two relevant areas which are extremely relevant to us sexual purity and love toward one another uh, those things uh, are not easy and i uh, did not hold back in looking at them but we really uh, if we were to put them in practice would have a revolution a spiritual revolution if not a revival now, Paul is starting another section, and he's going to be considering the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ, because in Paul's day, maybe like in our time, this had become a matter of controversy. And what Paul does is teach the truth about this so if you can all look at your bibles chapter 4 verse 13 i do not want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope the answer to problems in the Christian life is not avoidance but clarity of teaching have you ever thought of it like that uh, we are afraid I think uh, to tackle certain truths such as the second coming because Christians have always taken different interpretations and we don't want to rock the boats but that doesn't really help avoiding an issue. The best thing to do is to look at what God says in his word, even if it means that we agree to disagree on certain secondary interpretations. As long as we do that in a spirit of love, it really doesn't matter. I think we have found that with the whole issue of baptism. And maybe in our circle, we've avoided looking at the second coming for similar reasons, uh, because a number of very good Christians who have a greater zeal than us, I think, for the Lord, that they've just gone too far the other way. And we've overreacted to that. Uh, I can't remember preaching much on the second coming. Uh, when you go to other places or conferences, how often do you hear sermons on the second coming. The advantage of going through a book is we can't avoid these things. But we've already come across it. 
If you look at the end of chapter 1, how did chapter 1 finish? The second coming. He raised Jesus from the dead and we're waiting for his son from heaven. The end of chapter 2. What does the end of chapter 2 have to say about the second coming? For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? And then chapter 3. Is there anything there at the end of chapter 3 about the second coming? Well, of course there is. That he may establish your heart blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So Paul has uh, mixed the doctrine of the second coming, even up till now. But now we're going to have a much bigger look at it from this uh, 13 in chapter 4 all the way uh, to verse 11 in chapter 5. But notice here how Paul teaches doctrine. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it like this. It is not the preaching of doctrine that we've got in the Bible. It is doctrinal preaching. What does that mean? Well, when I gave a talk on baptism, that wasn't a sermon. That was a lecture. It was a talk on doctrine. There's nothing wrong with that. And we may do those occasionally. But in preaching, doctrine is dissolved into the exposition of the word. So I'm not preaching the doctrine of the second coming in these verses, as Paul isn't. But in looking at these verses, we are being doctrinal. Do you know the difference? It's like, um, I don't know, having... Um, I'm trying to think of an example. It's, it's like having sugar cubes dissolved in your tea. That's how John Newton uh, described uh, his Calvinism. He said, I like my Calvinism like sugar cubes in a tea. It's all dissolved. It's the word of God that matters. The word teaches. But in the end, we're not here to just hear a lecture, are we? We're here to be fed with the word. So there is that. And what was causing the problem in Thessalonica about the second coming? Well, there were all sorts of problems. There were believers, well, they all thought that Jesus was about to return soon. I think it's right to say that. These New Testament Christians were so overcome by what Jesus had done, they were expecting him in their lifetime to come back. And they had a problem about those who had already died. What would happen to those believers who'd already died when Jesus came back? Would they miss out on the second coming? So that's what Paul is dealing with to begin with. And also, uh, because some believers were teaching that Jesus was going to come back every day, any day, they said, you don't have to work then. There's no point going to work. Well, Paul deals with that later. But what we're going to look at tonight, we're not going to look so much at the second coming tonight, but at the way we are to grieve. Uh, in the verse we're looking at, verse 13, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. That's the answer 
two problems in the Christian life. It's not avoiding them, but it's being taught, even if we have to look at things that are controversial. I don't want you to be ignorant. And then he says this, concerning those who have died, fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Some in the church were in danger of grieving for their loved ones as if they had no hope at all because they were going to miss out on the second coming. Now, it's extremely relevant to this, isn't it? How can I grieve? I'm looking at this congregation tonight and I can see people who have lost loved ones in the past year. We grieve. We wouldn't be human if we didn't mourn. But we don't grieve as unbelievers. We don't grieve as those without hope. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, this is a powerful witness. Don't you want something that gives you a hope that even when you lose loved ones, you grieve with, with all that means with a hope in your hearts? We see it, don't we, in funerals. How different a Christian funeral is to uh, an unbelieving funeral. They're, they're completely different. Uh, one of the most uh, chosen songs in secular funerals is I Did It My Way. That's not going to give you hope, is it? I think the hymns we sang this morning, they're all good funeral hymns, aren't they? Now then, look at this hope. How can we grieve? How could these Thessalonians grieve for loved ones uh, as those who have hope? What gives us the hope? Just three things and then I'll be done. The first thing is the word of God gives us hope. Look at how Paul puts it a little later on. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Paul is comforting these Christians not with doctrine as something academic. He's comforting them with a word of God. And that word contains doctrines. So if you think of Pilgrim's Progress, poor Christian, as he's seeking God, comes to the slough of despond, uh, the bog. And he sinks in it. And he thinks he's going to die. But as he sinks, his feet land on something solid, the steps, the steps of the promises, the word of God. That's what gives you and I hope. So we are not just despairing in the face of death and in the face of bereavements. Yes, we grieve, but we've got something to hold on to. Aren't you glad of that? And this word doesn't change. We've got a modern translation, but the truth doesn't change. Truth, unchanged, unchanging. Now, what does the word say about grieving? I think this is important, uh, just as an aside. We must be careful that we do grieve. So Paul is saying here that you sorrow. There is nothing unspiritual about grief. Uh, I'm stating the obvious here. We've finished our studies in Jeremiah and Lamentations. You wouldn't have had the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations without tears. 
the man was so filled with grief that he said in one part, oh, that my head were waters that I might weep for the states of Zion. So there is nothing wrong with showing our emotions. Jesus Christ, the greater than Jeremiah, and if Jesus Christ did this, who are we not to follow his example? If the perfect man stood at the grave of his friend Lazarus and wept, then we can't say, can we, that it's wrong to grieve. I think there's a danger sometimes in our circle to avoid showing emotion. My friend, there is nothing wrong with that. Now, we're all different. Uh, Some of us are less emotional than others. That's fine. The important thing is this. We've got to let it out. We, we are human. Uh, God has given us uh, grief and tears in order uh, to uh, uh, be an outlet for these pressures. Uh, there, there was a time when I thought, uh, I spoke to uh, the Reverend Neil Richards. I had him in my previous church in Calgary, and I said to him once, wouldn't it be good if we didn't have emotions? Wouldn't it be good? And he said, no, we're not robots. We're not robots. We're human beings. Let me just read some Stott here. John Stott's commentary on Thessalonians is superb. Mourning is natural, even for a while, essential, emotionally necessary. It would be very unnatural, even inhuman, not to mourn when we lose somebody near and dear to us. To be sure, it is appropriate at Christian funerals to joyfully celebrate Christ's victory over death, but we do so only through tears of personal sorrow. If Jesus wept, Stott says, at the graveside of his beloved friend Lazarus, his disciple we're surely at liberty to do the same. We should all have a period of mourning. I've known people uh, many years ago who tried stoically to show that they were fine, that they could cope. They just showed a stiff upper lip. But months, sometimes years later, a crash would come. It is right to grieve. But what Paul is saying here, and this is where we're thinking of the word of God, is that we do not sorrow as others who have no hope. Can you see the balance? Paul is saying, yes, we do sorrow. But when we sorrow, we don't sorrow in despair. We've got the word to hold on to. Yes, sorrow is difficult. And if you've lost a near and dear one, you're always going to feel that loss it's wrong to try and gloss over that. It is not the comfort of the gospel to say that you will never sorrow again. That will happen, but not this side of glory. My friend, weep if you are in sorrow, and we are to weep with those who weep. But we don't despair. We don't despair. The word of God 
That's the first comfort. And then the second comfort we've got in these verses, and especially what is it in the word that gives us hope? Well, Paul puts it, verse 14, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a creed here. Paul is putting in embryo form. This is one of the first letters that Paul wrote. So you've got in embryo here the gospel that he's going to expand later on in some of his great letters like Ephesians and Romans. But the hope of the gospel can be summed up in those two things, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. My friend, that's all you need to know in order to have that hope. Now, of course, we want to delve deeper into those truths, but that's the gospel in a nutshell. We believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So after a lifetime of serving the Lord, and after a lifetime of preaching this gospel, and after a lifetime of expounding it and writing great statements of faith, Paul is coming back again to this. The last letter he wrote, Thessalonians was the first, the last letter he wrote was to Timothy. And he wasn't writing from a hotel, he wasn't writing from a mountain refuge hut, but he was writing from a prison and he was awaiting execution. And this is not just academic to him, it's felt, it's real. And he says, Jesus hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He's encouraging the young Timothy and he's saying to him, Timothy, it's all right. Even though I'm about to die, this same gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that I've preached to others to give them hope is now giving me hope and I want to encourage you. And Peter, Peter who was executed, Paul was executed, beheaded probably, Peter was crucified, according to tradition, crucified upside down. And what did Peter say? The words we opened our service with, that living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Book of Common Prayer says a sure and a certain hope. Hope. Doesn't it thrill your soul this evening that in the Word of God we have in Jesus, who's revealed in the Word, especially in His death and resurrection, those two great events, we have a hope in the face of death and eternity. So let's open this up a bit. Uh, If you look at chapter 5, Paul says something more about Christ's death in chapter 5. He talks in verse 9 about salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We all know what that means. I'm not going to go into detail. But then he says, who died for us. Who died for us. Christ's death as our substitute, right? Now I want you to look at how Paul describes death. When he's referring to Jesus' death, he uses the word death. Separation. But what does Paul say of believers who've died? 
He doesn't use the word death. Did you notice that? Several times he uses the word sleep. I do not want you to be ignorant, verse 13, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And then in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And then in other parts of the Bible, the word sleep is used for the believer's death, but never for Jesus' death. Jesus died as our substitute. And because he died the death, which we don't have to die. He's transformed death into sleep for you and for me. Do you get that? Let me quote 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, by his death, took the sting of sin upon himself, taking the sting out of death. So that death is made harmless. John Elias, for in his death, our death died with him on the tree, and a great number by his blood will go to heaven made free. Christ endured the full horror of the death that is the wages of sin and thus transformed death for his followers into sleep. Isn't that lovely? To die is to fall asleep in Jesus Christ. Now I need to say something here. It's not soul sleep. The soul doesn't go to sleep. The body goes to sleep. The soul, at the moment of death, is separated from the body. Where does the soul go to? When Jesus said to the dying thief, who said to him, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom, Jesus said to him, today, instantaneously, you shall be with me in paradise. So at the moment of death, when there is that separation of body and soul, and that's quite something. The soul goes straight into the presence of the Savior. But the body is asleep. Now, we know uh, that the body, whether it's cremated or buried, is going to be destroyed. But the word sleep describes something temporarily. I like how John Owen puts it. Uh, The Puritans weren't uh, dry as dust. When at death the soul departs from the body, it is immediately freed from all weakness, disability, darkness, doubts and fears. Don't you feel sometimes, especially as you're getting older, that the body is heavy? Don't, Don't you feel you're carrying this body around and it drags you down? It really does, doesn't it? When you want to give yourself to the things of God, you've got to deal with a body. And if you're suffering from illness, it affects how you are spiritually, doesn't it? And if you've got the sorrows of the mind, which is an old-fashioned word for depression, then that's doubly so. But the moment of death, the soul is liberated. And you fly to be with 
the Savior and your light. And there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more distractions. To fall asleep. Jesus didn't sleep. Jesus endured the full death, the separation, not just of body and soul, but the separation of communion with his Father. Because he who knew no sin had become sin for us. And because Jesus dealt with sin, he's transformed our death into sleep. There's a hymn which says this, it's not death to die. Well, well. To know this weary road and leave it behind and midst the brotherhood on high to be at home with God. Those who've died that last year, especially now, they're with the Lord. Their souls are with the Lord. Tis not death to close the eye long dimmed by tears and wake in glorious rest to spend eternal years. I'm not being morbid if I say this. This year, some of us are going to die. Some of us in this room are going to die. In Christ, you are falling asleep. And however painful that process of dying may be, you're going to wake up in his presence. I never forget Graham Harrison reading this hymn to us. I'm only reading a few lines in Bible college because we were having a discussion about death and some were opening up and saying, even as a Christian, I'm afraid of dying. I know where I'm going but I'm afraid of the process. It's a horrible thing. And then Mr. Harrison quoted this. Should earthly pleasures wane and joy forsake me, if lonely hours of pain at length o'ertake me, maybe fainting. I faint if I'm in too much pain. I don't know if it's a defense mechanism, but I faint. That's what will probably happen to me. I'll faint. And then, this is how the hymnist goes on to write. If that happens to me, if I faint, my hand in thine hold fast till sorrow be o'erpassed and gentle death at last for heaven. Awake me. That must be an experience. Passing out or with uh, morphine. Uh, just... Uh, being uh, subdued and then waking up in heaven, seeing the face of Jesus Christ. So that's the hope, the word, and especially the death and resurrection, and then finally and quickly, the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is getting to in these verses. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And he goes on to talk about the appearing of Jesus, the parousia, the Greek word, uh, the advent of Jesus. Now, I was going to preach this text before Christmas, and we call the period leading up to Christmas the advent, because it's 
The first advent of Jesus. Advent is coming. So Christmas is the first advent of Jesus. There's going to be a second advent of Jesus. And it's an appropriate time, isn't it, after Christmas to look at the second coming. The second advent of Jesus. We're in between those two advents. And in between, I believe in the advent of Jesus by his Spirit visiting his people. But this is the thing. Our hope is not just the fact that when we die, our souls will go to be with Christ in heaven. But at some point, Jesus Christ is going to come back. The believers in the New Testament, they were looking forward to this. They had a watchword, Maranatha, come Lord, come quickly. Aren't we cool in our attitude to the second coming? This is what I've got to give to those Christians whom I disagree with on their particular interpretations of the second coming. They are looking forward to it. Oh, that we had that longing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. As Paul goes on to say, those who have already died... Do you know what's going to happen at the second coming? We're going to look at this in the next few weeks. But let me just give you a preview. What's going to happen is that Jesus is going to come back, but he's not going to come back alone. There's going to be a procession. Have you seen a procession in a funeral? Uh, Think of the Queen's funeral. What a procession that was. But this procession is not going to be a funeral procession. It's going to be a procession to life. Eternal life. And at the head is going to be the one who has died in the funeral. It's the body in the coffin in this procession. There's no coffin because there's no need for a coffin. It's the resurrected Jesus Christ in all his glory. And lo and behold, he's going to come with those who've died, having been raised again. What a procession. And they're not going to have their old bodies. They're not going to have all the infirmities that their old bodies had. Think of the people we have lost recently, how ill some of them were. They're not going to be in those bodies when they're in that procession. They're going to have perfect bodies. They're going to have new bodies. They're going to have resurrected bodies. We're going to look at the resurrection body next week, God willing. And they're going to be in that procession when the saints, when the saints come marching in. I'm sure we'll notice, if we're still alive when he comes, we'll notice those we love in the procession. We'll notice those we have revered. We'll we'll see Dr. Martin. And we'll, we'll see John Elias. And we'll see Spurgeon, no longer with gout. And yet, I don't think we'll be seeing them will just be enraptured by Jesus Christ. I read of somebody, a new believer, when they came across the word rapture, they thought it meant being enraptured by the sights of the Saviour. Isn't that good? Uh, That's what it will be like. Let me just come to a conclusion. When Jesus comes again with his saints, it'll be a new morning. It will be a new day. It will be an eternal day. At Winston Churchill, did any of you see Winston Churchill's funeral? I wasn't around at the time. But apparently, a bugler sounded 
a slow, mournful notes evoking death. But the bugler didn't end with that. After that, the bugler then played another tune, and it was a tune that was used to call soldiers to a new day. And it's a bit like that for us. When our funeral comes, and, you know, we're all going to have to one day be in a coffin. Well, the body's going to be in a coffin, and a minister's going to say something about us. And it's going to be that mournful note, in a way, because we grieve. And yet, it doesn't end there. My friends, death isn't going to have the last word. The last word is going to be the Alpha and the Omega. The first word will be the last word. And Jesus will end the history of this universe. And when he comes, he will come with the procession of his saints. And it will be a mourning. Will you be there amongst that number? Oh, to be amongst that number. When the saints come marching in. I took a funeral many years ago. A man who was brought up in a Pentecostal church. We need, we, we need the Pentecostal emphasis, don't we? And uh, this man, I used to sit down there. And we buried him in the largest cemetery in the country. One of the largest cemeteries in the country. Uh, uh, Newport Cemetery and I've never seen this happen before but after the coffin had been lowered and I'd read the, the words of uh, commissioning uh, the, the words of committal, I'm sorry I'm thinking forward to <laughs> the <laughs> resurrection uh, people threw flowers in and every one of them said see you in the morning See you in the morning. See you in the resurrection morning. What a prospect that's going to be. When Jesus, we'll have to look at these details over the next few weeks. But when Jesus returns, those who've already died are going to be raised. I don't know what the crematoriums in Cardiff will be like. <laughs> those who are Christ waking up. Waking up from sleep. That's what sleep implies. Temporary. Now new bodies. And Jesus meeting them and coming with them to meet with those of us who are left behind. Well, may God give us grace. I just want to finish by mentioning this. Um, somebody lost a relative. And as we say... Sorry, you have lost your near and dear. And this Christian said, I haven't lost them. I haven't lost anybody. You can't lose something when you know where it is. We, we haven't lost anybody. Because we know where they are. They are with Christ forever with the Lord. Amen.